chapter 9. I want to I start off this morning uh, actually by looking back uh, a little bit onto uh, Luke chapter 9. We'll spend just a few minutes doing that, and that'll help us um, uh, get us to the place where we well, can understand, I think, this passage uh, a little bit more by looking back. Um, if you are using an ESV, uh, like, like I do, um, and I think, I'm pretty sure most, most of us uh, do, uh, the editors, and particularly this version, um, the editors have actually split chapter 9 up to the point where we are today in verse 23 into five different, uh, five different sections. Y'all see that. You can count them. One, two, three, four, five. And we've already dealt with all five of, of those uh, different sections. Now, what we've been talking about uh, over the past weeks is we've been reminding ourselves, actually the past months, is that since about chapter 7, um, Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been using these different events in Jesus' ministry and his teaching times and his ministry to open our minds and our hearts to the person and work of Jesus Christ, to, to see his character, to see his authority, to see his deity, to see his power, to see his mercy and his forgiveness, right? Over and over, we've been seeing these things, these character traits of the Son of God being shown to us one by one. And now that we are at chapter 9, there's this shift in the gospel that moves away from more of his, his personality traits, or his character, I should say. That's a much better way to say it. His character to now his identity, who he is. Who, can, who is this guy that does these things, that has this character uh, uh, about him? <clears throat> and that's what we've been seeing throughout chapter 9. So the first section there in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God with this powerful message that can, that can save people. And they prove the, the preaching of the message by the healings that they were doing, the works of miracles. This shows us that Jesus is the king who sends out his people to proclaim his message, the gospel of his kingdom, and to bring sinners. And the, the message of God's kingdom, the gospel of God's kingdom, is to bring sinners to God, to be reconciled with God. Second section, we see there how there's this, this kind of this weird interjection there, right? Like you see Jesus sending his disciples out, and then all of a sudden we get this commentary from Herod who's trying to figure out who uh, uh, Jesus is, right? Jesus is popular, and he just wants to know, who is this guy? And apparently he doesn't get a straight answer. He gets the same answers that we get later. This is what everybody thinks that uh, uh, Jesus is. But the question that he highlights for us is the question of the chapter. Who is this? Third thing we see is that when his disciples come back in chapter 9, that when his disciples come back, they, they're mobbed again by the crowds, and they move from, the wilder, or from the, where the crowds are to the wilderness, but the crowds uh, gather with them even more. And literally, there are tens of thousands of people that show up that day to hear Jesus, to see Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, whatever it may be. It becomes late in the day and they need food. And so Jesus overwhelmingly welcomes everyone to stay and he provides for them by feeding them uh, 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 from this small lunch and everybody is satisfied. And if you remember what we said about this passage, that it's not just another uh, 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 miracle in the desert, it wasn't just a snack in, in the desert, but this was a, a pointing forward to the messianic host of the great banquet that is to come. The, um, actually, uh, that, uh, I don't know if it was that day or not, but later on that week after I preached this message, um, our, our brother Bill, he, he corrected me. He didn't correct me. He just said, why didn't you use the term the marriage supper of the lamb instead of messianic banquet? And I said, honestly, it didn't cross my mind. <laughs> it didn't cross my mind. So, so if that makes sense, he is the host of the marriage supper of the lamb, and he literally pays for our entry into the feast by his blood. We literally are paid our entry for the feast by his blood. He is our all-sufficient Savior. And then last week, fourthly, we saw the pinnacle of the revealing of the identity of who Jesus is. 
They got alone. Jesus was praying, and he was praying for his guys, and he asked them a big question. Who do you say that I am? And, of course, we know the answer. Peter rightly answers, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, yep, that's me. Bingo. This is, this is the revealing huge statement we talked about last week. This confession is not only uh, um, the statement by which the, the, the whole church is, is built, but it is the statement by which anyone becomes a believer. It is what we confess in faith. To become a believer. He is not just a good guy or a teacher or another prophet, but he is the Christ of God. And lastly, we saw right after he makes this confession, he, in a sense, kind of rebukes his boys a little bit, knowing what they believe and what Israel believes about the coming Messiah. He tells them what the plan is. Here's the plan of the Messiah. The real plan of the Messiah is that I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to be raised again. Not the plan they were hoping for. In fact, it's not even close. And as shocking as that would have been for them after realizing that He is the Messiah, and now I have to watch the Messiah die, as shocking as that was, wait till you hear what he says next. And it's our passage this morning. So starting in verse 23, read, read with me. And he said to all, all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? Or forfeits himself. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. In the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. May the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, move in our hearts this morning to see His holy, inspired, and inerrant Word to His glory and for our joy. One of my earliest sermons I ever preached actually came from this <clears throat> passage, actually verse 23, it was an assignment in college in my preaching class that the professor gave us the texts, the different texts, and we all were writing the same, in a sense, same sermons on the same passage. And, and so when I knew that this passage was coming up, I, I, I went on a, a search of my hard drives and my notebooks to try to find this sermon. And I, I couldn't find the actual written down one, but I found uh, uh, an earlier version of it. Uh, maybe not the original, but an early version of it. And, and to your absolute benefit, it was no help to me at all for this sermon. <laughs> Um, the only thing that I learned from looking at it and reading it was to thank God for his mercy toward me in my young, ignorant self. Um, and I prayed for more of that mercy as I preached this morning the same passage. But what I could see in my notes was that I took serious this passage. I took serious this passage and I struggled with this passage, not really in its meaning or in its interpretation or, uh, or what it means to the church, but what I struggled with was what it, because I actually understood what it meant. I understood what it meant. I could see that and it makes sense to me what Jesus is saying there and I could see the struggle with this passage. We can read it right there in verse 23. You can see it right there. That a Christian's relationship with Jesus looks very unique. It looks completely different. It's clearly defined by Jesus, and he absolutely gives us no other options. And the real sad thing about that is, as many people who call themselves Christians, many people have might have professed Christ, they have never heard this. I've never heard Jesus' words himself clearly articulate, this is what it means to follow me. 
So let me, give you, let me give you two problems of why this passage is difficult, why I find it even still to be difficult today, and you probably feel difficult, this passage to be difficult as well. Number one, I don't know about you, but self-denial is one of the last things that this sinful flesh wants to do. I want to live daily to serve my own desires, my own comforts, my own pleasures, and meet my own needs and use other people to meet my own needs. Am I the only one on that? I mean, let's just take the example of fasting. I, I, I love the idea of fasting. I, I, I love the idea that Jesus calls us to fasting. I can see its spiritual benefits for myself, for the church, but I don't like to fast. Why? I don't like to deny my flesh food. I don't like to deny my flesh something that I really enjoy. And that's just one very simple example. But when I read this passage, man, does it hit me hard in the soul. And it, comes, it, it, it demands some very hard questions about my life. Here's another problem. Self-denial isn't something any one of us really want to talk about. We don't want to talk about it. That's why it's rarely talked about. Have you ever heard anybody preach a message on this? I mean, they, they, it happens. This is a good passage. It happens, but rarely. Self-denial isn't something we want to talk about. If there's one thing that we could describe the 21st century Western culture, and, and by the way, the 21st century culture who is now this self-indulgent, self is thy, uh, is thy pleasures and comforts is the number one goal in, in our age, guess what? We learned it from somewhere. We learned it from the, 20, the 20th century people. Right? That's our, that's our number one goal in, in this age. And everything from, from television to social media, shopping on our phones, uh, having to, the, the, the multitude of restaurants that we can pick out and, and the food that we can choose and what we want to eat, everything is about our choice. Everything is about our choice. And we ponder over all of these things so much because we want to serve ourselves. And the whole culture has been created around that idea to serve you and what you want. You don't like that? You go for this. You live for you. When have you ever heard, this is going to sound ridiculous, when have you ever heard a TV commercial tell you, hey, don't buy this car. I know it looks good. I know you like it. And it will ride good. Trust me, I built the thing. It will ride for it. But you don't need it. You don't need that new phone. You don't need that new whatever it might be, computer or new clothes or whatever. You, you don't know. When do the, a company has ever done that? They would actually say, no, it's good for you to deny yourself that. That sounds stupid. And why? Because we live to serve our flesh. We learn to serve our flesh and we don't want to consider self-denial at all. But that is paradoxically opposed and different to what Jesus teaches us here in this passage. When we speak about self-denial in a biblical sense, I want you to understand that it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy luxuries. We, we live luxurious, by the way. There's not anybody in this room that does not live luxurious. We live a luxurious lifestyle. To deny the self doesn't mean that we can't sleep on a bed or enjoy a com the comfort of air conditioning or to drive a car or eat good food and on and, and on. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's the case that we need to deny ourselves these things. But what Jesus is getting at is something completely different. You see, those forms of self-denial, like the not to sleep on the bed or good food or, 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 air, or enjoy the comforts of the air conditioning, anybody, even unbelievers, can, can do that. Anybody on a tight budget does that. When I was a college student, I ate ramen noodles. I had a tight budget. Yeah, maybe you have to take a bus. Maybe you have to sleep on an air mattress. But that doesn't equate to self-denying that Jesus is saying. I was poor in college, and there was a time I had to sleep on an air mattress, and I didn't enjoy the luxuries of air conditioning, and I had to eat ramen noodles, but I was self 
indulgent. The self-denial that we see here described for us in the Gospels is one that Jesus preached for us on the Sermon on the Plain. He gave us a clear picture of this new ethic of the kingdom of God. And if you get a chance, you ought to look back again and see these things on how a believer, how a disciple who has been transformed by Christ is to deny oneself of their very own rights, their feelings, their wants, their property, their desires and pleasures in order to show the undeniable, steadfast, gracious love of God to someone else, to your neighbors, to even your enemies. Following Jesus this way is completely unique to Christianity because the self-denial is at the heart of discipleship. Simply put, and I think this is what Jesus was getting at, you cannot be a follower of Jesus or say that you are a follower of Jesus and not choose to deny yourself. If I'm, if I'm reading that wrong, feel free to correct me. I mean, that verse is very clear. I like what Matthew Henry said about this passage. He said, self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school. When you're saved by the Lord from your sin, and He drew you to Himself, and you responded in faith, and you were, then you are united with Him. And the first lesson that we are taught by the Scripture and the Holy Spirit is to deny yourself daily. And this lesson of denying ourselves daily does not stop on that first day. John Calvin ramped it up even more by saying, denying oneself is the sum of all of Christianity. To a lot of degree, he is very right. You cannot find in Scripture, and you, you can take this as a challenge, you cannot find anywhere in the Scripture where it commands a believer to live for yourself to conform your ideas of what you think Christianity is around meeting your own needs and what you want. And let me tell you, that is exactly what the church has sold people. This is how we build a church. And I don't see that. You can almost say that most of the New Testament, especially Paul's epistles, his commands to the church are all in a category of denying yourself. To look to others greater than yourself. To submit yourself unto one another. Calvin was right. It is the sum of all of Christianity. And this morning I want you to see, as hard as it is to swallow in this passage, that to be a disciple of Jesus is to deny yourself. It's the only way to follow Him. So I have two simple points straight from the passage this morning I want to show, share with you. A disciple denies themselves, and a disciple takes up their cross. First point, a disciple denies himself or themselves. Or self. That's what I have here, self. To deny ourselves in this culture, as we already spoke of and talked about, is pretty much, I think, the most rebellious thing you can do anymore. I mean... You know, a, a rebel is someone who looks different, right? A rebel is one who rebels against the norm, the status quo. You would, you would quickly become an outsider, a weirdo. You would be hated. Everyone else is doing what feels good, and nobody is denying themselves. This is why we need to hear Jesus we need to slow down and we need to listen. Have you ever heard of a celebrity, an athlete, or even a politician teach any of that? To display the traits of denying oneself? This is why we need to hear this. This is how we rebel against our culture. Now, now we know to deny ourselves, though, is, is not the magic that saves us. It's not the magic that saves us. There's, there's no amount of denying yourself or asceticism that you can do to save you. We are only saved by grace of Christ, the grace of Christ through the cross 
And that is why Jesus told us, um, told us first that he was going to go to the cross first. Because, because we cannot become a disciple if we have not died at the cross first. Um, Robert Stein said this in his commentary about this passage. He said, he said, to deny oneself is to have a radical change of mind, to repent, regarding one's priorities in life. These metaphors help us focus attention on what is involved in true faith and repentance. If one were to look at the human response in conversion as a kind of prism, you guys know what a prism is, right? It's that weird-looking triangle, what's it called? Like a, a square cone, right? You've got an ice cream cone, that's a square, upside down, you put light in it, reflects, reflects, refracts, refracts light out, right? So, so if, if we were to look at our human response in conversion as a prism, he says, he says, faith, Repentance, denying oneself, and not being ashamed would all be different refractions of that prism just viewed in different angles. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? If we deny ourselves, it's just like, it's, it's just a part of the, what transformed life looks like. It's the one who's living by faith and repenting. To deny ourselves means to put away anything that challenges or moves our hearts away from the kingdom of God. This then can mean anything, even good things, like possessions, food, sports, desires for power and popularity, prestige, even self-preservation, safety, comforts, can be things that we should deny. We are to denounce and reject anything, any human glory that attempts to cost us our loyalty and love for Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is seeking first the kingdom of God and denying ourselves. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, and I highly commend that book to you if you have not read it. It's a glorious book. Um, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He said this. He said, to deny ourselves is to behave toward ourselves as Peter did Jesus when he denied him three times. It's the exact same verb that's used there, to deny. It's the exact same Greek word. He, he disowns him, <clears throat> repudiated him, turned his back on him. Self-denial is not denying ourselves luxuries such as chocolate cakes, cigarettes, and cocktails, though this may be. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny ourselves is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Did you hear that? To deny ourselves is just like how Peter denied Jesus that day. To disown ourselves. To repudiate ourselves. Look that one up turning away from our self-centered idolatry. We are idol factories of ourself. Self-autonomy and self-love, the gods of this age, the gods of our flesh is not following Jesus. Self-denial is removing ourselves as the master because only Jesus can serve in the position of masters of your life. Man, that's rebellious. That's, that is absolutely rebellious. This is why Jesus was considered rebellious. This is why Jesus was so countercultural, because nobody was doing this. Nobody is doing this in our age as well. But this is what it means to live by the kingdom of God. What does it look like? Well, he tells us what it looks like. He tells us what self-denial looks like. Look at verse 25. He says, for what does it profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, the things that we hope to gain feeding the flesh and self-indulge, living for ourselves. What does it tell us? 
that whatever it is, whatever we're trying to gain, whatever it is that we're, we're holding on to tightly, whatever this world has for us to, to gain and to hold on to tightly as the things that we don't want to give up, that we don't want to deny, what does it say? You're going to lose it anyways. And if that leads us to be ashamed of Jesus, and I think the context of this passage is also talking about, mainly talking about persecution and hostility, we'd rather save ourselves than to make the profession for Jesus. But I also think that it has an implication of our everyday obedience, doesn't it? Isn't it in our disobedience we are saying, nope, I am my own master? And I want to serve myself to deny yourself every day is the first step of obedience to the Lord. It's the first step of following the Lord. How else are we to serve and love one another? The obligation of obedience in, in the gospel if we are not denying ourselves. How are you to serve a sister or a brother who is in need if you're not denying yourself? Even in the simplest ways to live in community with one another in the church. To being a part of the body of Christ as much as possible, even when we don't feel like it. Boy, have we bought into so much and so many lies that tell us, if I only do enough to get by. I have to say that if this is your way of thinking when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christ, the Son of God, then we cannot be surprised to see Jesus ashamed of us when He returns and not know you when He returns. A disciple denies himself and looks to Jesus that's my first point. My second point, and, and it, this, these, they kind of really meld together as you see it in the text there. But a disciple takes up their cross daily. You see that in verse 23. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now the cross, as we have seen it these days, is not a piece of jewelry. But the cross to them was an instrument of death. It was an instrument of, of death. And, and, and the disciples who heard Jesus say this right after they, after they said that, he said that Jesus himself, he said, I'm going to die. And right after the confession that he is the Messiah, they heard Jesus say that, that we need to take up our cross and follow him. The disciples knew exactly what this means. Because they themselves, even before Jesus died, guarantee that at least... Uh, at least they have seen one, uh, I'm sorry, that they all have seen at least one of them, at least one person die a crucifixion. And everybody who dies crucified, they must carry their cross. The Romans made them take a piece of the cross and bear it on their back. This cross bearing that they knew was a public uh, display of humiliation. And Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? You will take up this instrument of death, of humiliation your whole life. And you will bear it. And follow me. Now, isn't it remarkable though, that Jesus hasn't told us that he himself isn't going to the cross? He just said he was dying. I'm going to be killed. But he tells us to take up their cross because they knew exactly what he meant. Disciples would have heard, I'm going to die. Follow me. Come and die. To endure the suffering that will be set before you is to take up your cross daily. To endure and persevere in all afflictions is what he is speaking of. Especially the suffering we endure in the name of Jesus. There is, there is no worldly glory in the cross on this earth. There's just none. 
It's an instrument of death. It's humiliation. But what we know is that the glory of the cross is what we look forward to in eternity. The cross we bear in, in this life, the crosses we will, we will take up daily and follow Him is not a glory we're going to experience here. But it's a glory we will experience in eternity. So I want to show you two things in, under this point, what taking up your cross does. First, it uniquely, every day, I mean every day, it uniquely identifies us in Christ's suffering. I mean, we think that's just a Sunday thing. Or we think that's just like a, a, a Lord's Supper thing. No, every day we pick up our cross and we follow Him, uniquely identifies him, us with His suffering. The greatest mark of, of membership into the church that we have in the New Testament, and it's been given to us as a sacrament, or ordinance, I'm sorry, we're Baptists, ordinance is baptism. Baptism for every believer is a symbol of us being brought into union with Christ. It's a symbol of us being cleansed of our sins. A symbol of our new birth and life. But before we come up out of that water, what is it a symbol of? It's a symbol of our death. It's a symbol of our burial with Christ. And yet, it's also a symbol of our, of our participation in His resurrection. Baptism itself identifies us with Christ. Our denial of ourself and taking up our cross daily, uniquely, every day, identifies us with Jesus. Look to Romans chapter 6. It actually explains all of that about baptism just wonderfully. Romans 6. So if we bear our cross in suffering, so we will be more identified with our Savior. And so many of us have made Christianity into only just the triumphs and joys of the resurrection. And rightly so. We, we should look forward to our one day resurrection. We should look forward to next Sunday when we celebrate uh, Resurrection Day. And by the way, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. Every day, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. But before we can celebrate that, before we can celebrate that, doesn't Jesus have to go to the cross? I mean, look at today. Today is the, the day we look at Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. As much of a joy it was for all the people that were there, but Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He was going to the cross. He must die first. Brothers and sisters, in our great joy and anticipation and knowing that we have been made new and we will be made completely new in the kingdom of God and Christ will return. But right now, we must bear our crosses daily, identifying ourselves with the one who has already died. Let me give you a great example of, of this. Um, I heard a few years back of a, a story of persecution that took place behind the Iron Curtain in uh, Eastern Europe, I think yeah, somewhere in the 60s, 70s, maybe the 80s as well. Um, and at that time, um, the Russians, uh, the Soviet Union at the time, uh, were doing everything they could to destroy uh, Christianity in um, their occupied uh, areas because a good communist doesn't need God, they have Mother Russia. Right? That was, the, that was the, what they believed. Um, and, and this story was about a man named Yosef. And Yosef was a, was a Christian who was called to preach the gospel. And he couldn't preach openly anymore. He was going to be uh, arrested. But as he was preaching secretly, he was recording his sermons, and he was spreading them throughout Eastern Europe and even into Russia. Well, eventually you're going to get caught. And he was. He was caught. He was arrested. He was tortured. And he, he was even threatened to death. You are going to die for what you have done. You have broken the law. And this is what he said, speaking about one time of an interrogation. He said, during an early interrogation, I had an officer who was threatening to kill me. Sir, let me explain to you how I see the issue. This is, this is Yosef speaking. Your supreme weapon is killing. Right? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I got the AK. You don't. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works, because the guy's probably baffled, right? Here's how it works. You know that my sermons are on tape and have spread over the country. If you kill me, 
those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen to this again, because what this man has preached, he really meant it because he sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. (laughs) After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. (laughs) Another officer who was interrogating a a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Toussaint, which is Yosef, would love to be a martyr. But we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remember how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I kept the low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now, now that I placed my life on the altar and I decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they wouldn't kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and I could preach whatever I wanted knowing that I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was going to lose it. And now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. And isn't that the point of verse 24? Those who wish to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will, what? Will live. We take up our cross daily not to lose our life or to miss out on life, but we take up our cross daily and die to ourselves so that we may have life. To truly live. Secondly, we are to endure in shared suffering of this life. Taking up our cross daily also means being ready to endure the afflictions in life, knowing that God is sovereign over them. We have some in our own church right now that are facing suffering, that are facing enduring hardships in a fallen world. Brothers and sisters, there may be things that you are facing now, and things that you may be dealing now that you may never be delivered of until death. Things do not go our way. But to take up our cross and bear it daily means that we understand God's sovereign will behind all of them. We may not understand His purposes, but we believe that He is good. And we believe His will is sovereign over our life. Brothers and sisters, in your afflictions, do you believe that God has His purposes in them? whatever it may be. Maybe it's evil, a great evil, injustice that has been done against you. Do you believe that God is still sovereign? Can you be like Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis and say what you meant for evil, God meant for good? Because God has prepared these things for me. Can you say with confidence, I will take up this hurt and this pain because this is God's will in my life? you believe that God is always working in every pain and every evil and every suffering that comes our way, that He is working all these things for our good and for His glory? When we pick them up, when we pick these crosses up, when we pick this cross up that we are to bear, that He gives us as Jesus told us to do, do we know that it means that we are going to look more like our Savior? The one who bore the cross? Jesus who believed that God had prepared Him for that cross? When we bear our afflictions and our sufferings in this life, Do we believe that this is the cross that God has prepared for us to carry? And we get to look to Him, Jesus, who carried a cross 
that had a weight greater than any weight we could ever imagine. The sins of the world. Maybe you're bearing a situation of difficult forgiveness. The temptation for us uh, in, in that difficult weight is not to forgive. We, we want to give into the flesh. We want to taste wrath. We want to taste justice. We want revenge for ourselves because we want that person to feel the pain and the hurt that we have felt because they have wronged us. But we know what the Scriptures say. To make things right and to restore the relationship, there has to be forgiveness. And forgiveness is a step toward self-denial and taking up a cross cross of giving forgiveness. It's a step taking forward to the person who wronged you. There's a true story that I ran across this week in regards to that. I know I'm kind of telling a lot of stories today, but I thought these were helpful. The story is about, a, about an African-American man who, who uh, was a slave in Virginia. And as a young man, he escaped uh, slavery somewhere between his uh, his uh, teenager or early twenties, and and he was uh, he had a very abusive master, and he escaped, and he went up to the north and he became a, a minister of, of of a church, and and after the war was over, so many decades later, after the war was over and freedom have come to to all the slaves, this once evil, wicked slave owner eventually became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he greatly regretted and felt the guilt and the shame of his treatment of the slaves that he had. And when he became older, the slave owner wished to be reconciled with this slave who ran away. But in his old age, he was infirm, and he, he, couldn't, he couldn't leave. He was stuck at home in, in, in bed. So finding out where this uh, man was, he wrote a letter to them asking that if he could, he would go to him and ask for forgiveness, but since he was unable to come physically, would he come? Would he come to him? At, at his expense, he would pay for everything. Would you come to me so that I can ask for forgiveness? Now here's where the story gets interesting. The former slave, who's now a minister, had heard of his former master's conversion. And frankly, he struggled with that. He struggled with bitterness. Because the man had done him wrong. The man had hurt him greatly. The man hurt him so much that his heart was not soft to the man of all. Even when he heard of his conversion to Christ, he was angry. Angry and understandably. As angry as any of us would be. Understandably. And so when he received the correspondence and asking to forgiveness, he didn't know what to think. He didn't know what he should do. But after a long time, he finally agreed to go. And when they met face to face, the, the former slave owner who was in bed could not, could not get out of bed. And the former slave owner stood, or slave stood face to face at his bedside. The man in the bed began to confess his sin and weep, pleading to the former slave who is now the pastor to forgive him. And his former slave, with a tear running down his face, interrupted him and said, But I must ask you for forgiveness. For I have harbored bitterness and hatred toward you in my heart for the way that you treated me. And as the story goes, the men actually argued for a moment about that. About who really needed to be forgiven and reconciled. This powerful story, I think, is about self-denial and taking up the cross. The cross daily, the cross of, of, of reconciliation and making things right. The former slave had to humble his, to his, his pride even in a justifiable anger and grant forgiveness to one who had done him wrong. 
And the slave owner had to see his pride in what he has done and the evil in which he has done and seek forgiveness in this man. Forgiveness requires self-denial. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh is the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is taking up our cross and following him. So paradoxically to all the logic of safety and self-preservation, the call to pick up your cross and to die to self is actually a call to come and save your life. That's the point that Yosef found. And that's the point that the former slave and master found. If you refuse to deny yourself, seek your own satisfaction, guess what? You'll, you'll never find it. In fact, you'll lose what you think you are trying to gain. Those that live for themselves never get the satisfaction they seek. In fact, what ends up happening is that their hearts get smaller and smaller and shrivel up and it begins to devour itself. Jesus says again in verse 23, if you come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. But there's good news in this passage. This isn't all about losing yourself. Didn't you see the gain? What do we gain? We gain Christ. The good news as well is that we're not denying ourselves so that we can be saved. And boy, am I internally grateful for that. Because I can't do it. I would be in big trouble. You would be in big trouble. The, this life of self-denial, taking up our cross every day and following Him is only lived out by His grace and the work of the gospel in us. So because of the cross, Christ's cross, the real debt of our discipleship has been completely paid. Christ has already denied Himself as the perfect sinless person to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can enjoy the infinite glory of the kingdom of God. Just as Jesus must go to the cross to suffer and die, as we heard last week, we must follow in the same and take up our cross and follow Him. Philippians 3, verse 7, But whatever gained I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him and having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not from the law, but that which comes from the faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. This is grace-driven. Our discipleship is cross-driven. This is how we deny ourselves. We, how we take up our cross. We look to the one who is already dead and already has done it. We look to him. We trust him. We believe him. We love him. We confess. Lord, I may not know what this means. I don't know what this means, this cross means for me today, but I'm going to bear it faithfully looking to you who already bore the cross on my behalf. And this morning as we will take the Lord's Supper later, it's such a reminder of the suffering and rejection that he already bore on our behalf. Our glory is not here. The earthly things that we try to gain, the earthly glories that we're trying to get are so temporary. They're dying. They're unfulfilling. But a disciple's glory is enjoyed for all eternity in the kingdom of God. The reality is that, is that we think we may lose out. We're thinking we're going to lose out if we deny ourselves these things, this enjoyment, this comfort. But those are the very things that could be killing us. They're killing us from seeing Christ and following Him faithfully. What we may not see is our discipleship is also not a solo act. Your cross-bearing is not a solo act. It's a community project. 
Our bearing the cross together is what it means to live in community as the church. We're all called to the same thing. Christ established His church so that we would walk humbly together, bearing the cross together. Rugged individualism that demands autonomy is, cannot exist in the church. It's not discipleship. It is not denying the self. That's living in self-preservation, saying that I can do this myself. Men, we are especially terrible at this. We always say, I'm good. I can handle this. But isn't there enough objective evidence in our lives to say, no, you can't? We need each other in our cross-bearing, in our suffering, in denying ourselves. We need each other. We were created to exist and to live in this new, reconciled, redeemed community. What are you living for? What are you pressing into with your time, your money, your thoughts, your loves? Is it what... Is what you do today really taking up your cross? What would it mean for you to lose your life in order to save it in the end? Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful that you sent your Son to bear a cross, my cross that I so rightly deserved a cross of suffering, rejection, and death. Thank you for sending your Son who bore that on our behalf. Oh, Father, would you forgive me, would you forgive us, O oh God, for not denying ourselves? for trivializing what it means to follow you, God, into a couple hours a week, if that. Forgive us, O oh God, for making this call to discipleship to follow our Savior who bore such a cross. Forgive us for trivializing it, God. Help us as your people, as your people this morning, to get a fresh clear look at the cross of Christ. Help us by your Holy Spirit to see the areas and things in our life that we have allowed to grow up and choke us out. Forgive us, O oh Father, for being so self-indulgent to our flesh. Help us, O oh God, to, be, to take up our cross, to live obediently and not be ashamed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.